Welcome back, everybody, to the Uncensored CMO. I've got a, an absolute cracker of an episode for you this week. I meet with Paul Feldwick, an industry legend in the advertising world, and he has a new book out called Why Does the Peddler Sing? about what creativity really means in advertising. It's a fascinating conversation, and you'll notice a rather longer episode than normal, so I decided actually not to edit this one down because I thought the conversation was uh, really fascinating and rich. So either uh, find a nice long slot or uh, maybe split it up over a number of shorter listens, but it's well worth listening to. In this episode, Paul and I cover a short history of advertising. We look at the different models of advertising and how they work and why some of them don't really work. We also talk about what is described as the most honest case study of any ad campaign, the Barclay Card campaign in the 90s that Paul worked on with Rowan Atkinson and what he learned from doing that. We spend quite a lot of time in this episode also talking about P.T. Barnum. Now, you may have heard of him from The Greatest Showman, the film that brought him to the front of mind, but actually when you delve into his history, there's so much we can learn about creating fame and what that means for brands and how actually brand building is far more similar to celebrity fame than we might like to think. We cover a lot as well and uh, we end particularly on what are the four facets of fame that are really important to success. So this is a great episode, Um, it's a wonderful conversation, you'll really enjoy listening to Paul and uh, I will leave you now to get on with the show. Thank you very much. Paul, welcome to the Uncensored CMO. Hello there, John. Thanks. Uh, Pleasure to be here. Well, it's delighted to have you and, uh, and excited to have just finished your new book, which uh, which had me gripped, I have to say. It was a, it's a brilliant, brilliant read. Um, if you wouldn't mind, uh, for the benefit of listeners, just uh, introduce yourself, if you will, and, uh, and what sort of led you to write this book in the first place. Okay. Well, who am I? I went into the advertising business as long ago as 1974 when I left university and I joined what was then a sort of very um, flourishing but still quite small agency called Bose Massimi Pollitt. Um, And um, I joined actually as an account manager, but I quickly discovered I was the world's worst account manager. So after six months, they let me have a go at being an account planner. And that seemed to work much better. And I just stayed at that agency, really. Um, I stayed there for about 15 years and I rose through the ranks until I was head of the planning department. And then after about 15 years, Bose Massimi Pollitt, as it was, having become a public agency, then merged with DDB and became part of the DDB Worldwide Network. And I then spent another 15 years or so working very much, mainly in international roles, um, doing a lot of traveling, um, trying to sort of build global strategic functions and um, and generally having a great deal of fun I must say so I stayed I stayed in the same agency for over 30 years and um, I I think what kept me going was first the agency itself changed hugely around me it went from being a small local agency to being a part of a much larger global agency and of course the world changed Um, but I guess the other thing that kept me going was I was continually fascinated by the business of advertising. I am fascinated and I must say frustrated. Um, <laughs> and it's out of that fascination and that frustration that um, that everything I've written has come. I started writing quite early on as a way of making sense to myself of uh, you know what we were doing. 
Um, so I, I, you know, I wrote many papers for the Market Research Society and AdMap and things like that over the years. And um, then having left the agency, I then had the sort of, I guess I had the time and the energy to, to put some of that into book form, first of all with The Anatomy of Humbug and, and now with this, with this new one. I mean, they are both the outcome of many years of working in the business, reflecting on what I've been doing in the business, and also a good deal of, um, I suppose, teaching and learning by working with other people. So uh, the books are, I, I hope, a sort of distillation of some of what I've learned through that process. And so for your latest book that's just come out, where did the title come from? Because obviously I've, I've now read the book and, and, and I get this. I get the idea, but talk to me about what the inspiration for the title was. Well, I mean, the, 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 the genesis of the book, and it was building on kind of where I got to at the end of The Anatomy of Humbug, was this emergent theme of what I called humbug, or alternatively, showmanship. And it occurred to me that advertising, you know, is not, it's not just art, it's not just science. And perhaps we would do better to think of it as, as showmanship. It's, it's almost a branch of show business and it has a great deal to do with entertainment. And that seemed to me something that was on the one hand both glaringly obvious and incontrovertible when you just look at so many ads and the relationship between ads and, and the media. And yet something that the advertising business itself had always seemed you know, extraordinarily coy about admitting to and not the language mm. that they tended to use. So there was that paradox that I was exploring. And I guess the title came from, this is probably three or four years ago now, and the book was brewing in the back of my mind, but I hadn't really started writing it at that stage. Um, I was rereading Shakespeare's um, play, The Winter's Tale. And in Act Four of The Winter's Tale, there's a scene where the peddler, Autolycus um, turns up at a house in the country and a servant comes to announce him and says, oh, master, if you did but hear the peddler at the door. And he's really excited. And he says, there's a peddler at the door. and He's singing all these wonderful songs and I've never heard anything like it. You've got to ask him in. And that just sort of made an impression on me. I thought, I want to do something with that notion of the peddler at the door, because that seemed to me that's a powerful image for what advertising mm. is and always has been about. Um, you know, it is not just about giving you dry facts about products, although it can do that, and sometimes that's, uh, that's effective. Um, but that actually throughout the history of advertising, it's also had a great deal to do with putting on a show and the reason that it puts on the show it's not just about getting attention I mean attention is talked about a lot nowadays and there's some good work being done on the subject but that's only I suppose the very beginning of it you get attention but it's, it's also about building a relationship it's about being invited in so that people actually want to have some kind of a relationship with you and then building that relationship and putting people into the right sort of frame of mind and the right mood where they are keen to buy, uh, where, the, where they think your products seem better because of the entertainment that you're giving them. And I think that we now understand very well 
um, some of the psychology behind that, perhaps much better than we used to in the old days. Mm. We understand that it's about mental availability. We understand concepts like the, the affect heuristic. Um, we understand concepts like the importance of relationship building in communications. So all those things I sort of pulled together in this figure of the of the peddler at the door. And I wrote the chapter about which involves the peddler at the door. And I sent an early draft of the book to a few people. I sent one to Orlando at uh, System One, and I sent one to Rory Sutherland, who, who's an old friend. Um, and Rory said, I, I, I love this book. He said, you could actually call it, Why Does the Peddler Sing? And um, the more I thought about it, the more I thought that actually is a pretty good title. So I'm, I'm indebted is, to Rory for actually turning that that image of the peddler into the title. But I think it's a powerful image because it, it reminds us, continually ought to remind us, that the historical antecedents of advertising are not just in those sort of... Um, rather dry and worthy columns of classified ads that you used to get on the front of the 17th century newspapers, which is which is one place where, you know, a lot of the histories of advertising begin. But actually, it has a deeper history that goes back to the world of the mountebanks, um, the traveling peddlers, uh, the 19th century medicine shows, um, and indeed the world of Phineas T. T. Barnum, um, all mm -hmm. of which I think are are where advertising has come from and reflect so much of what it has done ever since. So, so that's, mm. that's the title and something of the theme of the book. That's really clever. It's funny, isn't it? Because those old classified ads are probably what the internet is mostly, <laughs> mostly providing us with now, isn't it? It's just moved from print to, to virtual. Absolutely. I mean, it's classified advertising that has been mostly, you know, mostly replaced by the internet yeah. simply because... If it's about, I mean, this is signposting at a basic level. It's about putting a buyer in touch with a seller. It's it's putting, you know, Miss Lonely Hearts in touch with Mr. Wright or whatever. It, it's putting employers in touch with staff. And, of course, the Internet, because it's interactive and it's searchable and so forth, um, it just tends to be a very, very effective way mm. of doing all those things. It hasn't completely killed classified advertising, but it's killed quite a large chunk of it um so that's that's one kind of advertising and of course the word advertising which literally means a sort of turning towards um in, in itself sort of reflects the idea of signposting um but there is something much more to it than that it's not just about saying you know here here here's the way to the thing that you're looking for um, it's actually about making something more attractive, more desirable, more likely to be chosen. Mm. Um, and there are other and more interesting sort of psychological processes mm. involved in that. I, I want to come back to, you mentioned P.T. Barnum. I want to come back and talk about him in a second. Um, but, but just before we do, just want to uh, stop on the, you, talk, you talked about behavioral science and psychological. Um, and in the, in the beginning of your book, you unpack different models of advertising don't you so you know the sales ship the salesmanship model subconscious associations you know salience fame mental availability yeah. Yeah. um just explain some of those and, and and also you know daniel kahneman's heuristics because they're incredibly useful and i think once you understand those it really does help uh to assess advertising in a new light yeah i mean i 
that this is really sort of reprising um, a framework that I set out initially in the anatomy of humbug, um, where I, I suggested there were six six possible models of advertising, and of course, you know that, that there may be more, or you may consider that some of them can be rolled up together. But I still just found that six was a good number, and they were making sort of six different points about advertising. I mean, the classic dominant model, I think, throughout advertising history in terms of how the ad industry itself talks is what I called the salesmanship mm. model. And I mean, this has various different permutations, but basically it's based on the idea that a salesman gives you reasons as to why you should buy one thing rather than another. It goes back to um, John E. Kennedy back in 1903 or whenever it was, um, suddenly announcing that advertising was salesmanship in print, um, a, a phrase that Harold Lasker, Albert Lasker found so um, so potent that he built his whole agency on it. So it's, it's a very compelling idea. And he said, advertising works like a salesman. He said, if, if a salesman is trying to sell something, he gives you reasons as to why this is better. Uh, you know, he doesn't just say this is good. He is specific. Now, there's a lot of truth in that. And a lot of the time that is very good advice. And in certain types of advertising, um, you know, giving reasons why your product is better and being very specific about those reasons and making them into interesting, compelling stories. That's a very it's a very strong way of advertising. Um, and it was developed throughout the, the you know, the 1920s um, by people like Claude Hopkins, um, who wrote that very influential book, Scientific Advertising, saying advertising is a salesman. Treat it like a salesman. Expect it to make sales. It's not there just to keep your name before the public. It's not there to help your other salesmen. Um, and Hopkins is... As, as so many people have been in the history of advertising, he's kind of right in what he asserts and he's wrong in what he denies in the sense that he's right in that all this can be very, very useful as one way of producing effective advertising under certain circumstances. But where he's wrong is he says all advertising works in exactly this same way. And a great deal of it, I think, works in quite a different way. So this dominance of our thinking by the salesmanship model has been dangerous because it has continually sort of put pressure on people, not just clients, but agencies as well, to try and pretend that every ad is about a message. Every ad is about a proposition. Every ad is about a reason why or a consumer benefit. Um, and sometimes those are important and sometimes they're not important at all because advertising may be doing quite other things. So what those other things are, I suppose, the other five models are different ways of trying to explain what those are. And very briefly, I mean, I started with the idea of what I call now, I think, something like subconscious associations, which is, and it's psychologically, it's, it's based as all these in a way are, on the notion of mental associative networks that you know you you make mental connections with a particular brand in your mind and, and that will influence you um, and those that's very different from the conscious message transmission model because it doesn't necessarily have to be conscious it doesn't necessarily have to be verbal or explicit 
It's more about, you know, I associate this brand with a particular image or with a particular feeling or with a particular context or whatever it is. And all those things um, are what advertising can help to build. And classically, it builds them through through imagery, through drama, through music, um, through creating emotional responses and so on. So that 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 would be one way of putting it. And I, I mean, alternatively described as subconscious seduction, um, as as Robert Heath calls it in his his excellent book on the subject, seducing the subconscious. But then you can take that whole idea and say, well, it may not be quite as complicated as that. Maybe there's a simpler way of looking at that whole thing. And this is where Byron Sharp and the Ehrenberg Bass people um, and their idea about mental availability, I think, becomes so important because I'm very I'm very convinced by that. Um, again, not as the total answer. And on that point, I may or may not disagree with Byron Sharp, but I think it's a very substantial part of the answer. And I think for practical reasons, if most people simply focused on that uh, as the answer, they would probably do a whole lot better than they might <laughs> do otherwise. So it has the great merit mm. of being incredibly simple. So mental availability simply means, yes, this brand has more associations in your mental associative network, but it almost it's less important what those associations are. And it's more important just that there are lots of them. Mm. And therefore, you're more likely to think of this brand more often. This is where Kahneman comes in, because he has this idea called the availability heuristic that we tend to regard as more important or more desirable things that are vivid and come easily to yeah. our minds, as you at System One also well know. Um, but it's not just about the availability heuristic. I think there's also what, what, what he calls the affect heuristic, which is if those mental associations are something pleasurable or positive, something that you want to run towards rather than run away from, then that is probably more desirable for a brand as well. I mean, you can have something potentially that's very top of mind, like COVID, but you don't actually <laughs> feel very positive about it. COVID has great mental availability. Um, COVID is not a brand that, that we particularly want to buy into. So there is a point at which there's a kind of positive negative valency about this as well. And that sort of leads you back a bit, I suppose, to the, to the previous model as well. Now, we'll talk more about mental availability um, and its relationship with, with other words like fame. So I'll, I'll pass over that for the moment. Um, there are other ways of looking at it, which I think are not at all contradictory to to these sort of mental associative network theories, but are just different ways of expressing the same idea, if you like. One of them is the idea of advertising as creating relationships. Um, and in, in the earlier book, I quoted Martin Bose, who was the Bose of Bose, Bose Massimi Pollitt, wonderful founder of the of the agency. And he used to say to us, when we first started in the business back in the 70s, you know, if you're going to invite yourself into somebody's living room for 30 seconds, I think you have a duty sort of not to not to insult them or shout at them or bore them. But you should, you know, be entertaining. You should be a charming guest. And, you know, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, I thought, well, that's sort of just rather sort of old school, charming, but not very scientific. I now think it's probably deeply profound and, and probably quite scientific if you want it to be as well, that, that 
it, it, it reminds me of that quote from Gossage, which I which I also put into the book, and I I quote quite a lot nowadays. Howard Gossage, the great contrarian San Francisco ad man of the 60s, who said that the the buying of time or space is not the taking out of a hunting license on somebody's private preserve, but the renting of a stage on which we may perform. Oh, I think that image yes. of, you know, what we're doing when we're advertising is we're renting a stage on which we can put on a show. Whatever medium that is in, whether it's the internet, whether it's print, out of home, video, whatever, whatever. Um, so, and I think what's gone wrong with a lot of advertising today particularly in the sort of digital realm, is that people have focused entirely on this notion of sort of we can somehow buy an opportunity to see or an opportunity to hear or whatever it is. Um, but then stop short of actually thinking, what am I going to do with that? Am I going to use that precious opportunity to communicate with somebody to either sort of shout at them like some kind of aggressive beggar? Or am I going to use that precious opportunity to put a smile on their face or tell them something that they might genuinely find interesting um, and build a relationship with them which will stand us in good stead. Um, so, so those are some of the models and I mean there, there, there are a couple of others. There's the um, what I call the sort of social construction model which is how advertising it also shapes our ideas about the world that we live in so it can change the meanings of things which again you can fit all that into the to the overall picture of mental associative networks and then my last model um, was kind of just sort of stepping outside of all that and saying let's sort of stop thinking of it in quite such a, a scientific left brainy way and let's say you know what I call the, the humbug model or the show business model is actually if it is about putting on a show you know, let's stop thinking so much about, you know, the, 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 the subtle psychology of what we're doing. Let's just concentrate on, on, on being entertaining, on making things famous. And let's get in touch with the spirit of P.T. Barnum. <laughs> um, and, and he does, of course, recur in both books quite a bit. So, so that's, um, that's a kind of a quick trot through the different models. And I, 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 have to stress whenever I talk about these that all these models are right, all these models are true, all these models are useful. The danger we fall into is only when we kind of assume that maybe one of them is right mm. and the others are wrong, uh, or we try to apply one in every situation. Yeah. Um, but having said that, you know, a lot of ads can be happily described in terms of every one of those models because they have aspects mm. of them all. Mm. Makes complete sense. And, and that's why I think Ehrenberg Bass or the work that Orlando's done to bring some empirical evidence as well to, to some of these models is, is so powerful. And um, actually, one, one, one thought you triggered as you were talking there, of course, is the relationship between entertainment and our attention as well. Um, and Orlando did did some recent work looking at a Barclay card ad. I don't know if you've seen it, the one with the gorillas in it. It, it was a Barclay card fraud prevention ad that had uh, people watching these gorillas and they didn't realise until halfway through the gorillas were actually actors and uh, they were kind of mucking about. And it, it, it's a fabulous 60-second spot. Mm. And um, he tests it up against uh, a very, very modern Apple ad for the HomePod, which is basically highly rhythmic. It's lots of words on the page. It's very flat and abstracted, mm. as he would describe it. And um, he yeah. worked with Lumen um, and tested it on different media 
to see how much, how many minutes of attention were actually captured uh, by the two different creatives. And what he found, uh, so not only was the uh, Gorilla creative from Barclay Card a five star and the Apple one star, so in terms of predicting likely action, but actually attention was for the delta between the two was about four times, irrespective of platform that the Barclay Car creative was three to four times or attracted three to four times the amount of viewing as well. And of course, you know, um, you know, the, the showmanship and entertainment also affects that the attention we give something, doesn't it? A bit like your, your quotes from uh, Gossage there about, you know, we'll switch off very quickly if what we're served up isn't, isn't entertaining uh, and appealing and, and so on. It's back to your peddler singing, I suppose. Absolutely right. Um, that's why I think Orlando has, has done a sort of great, great job of explaining, you know, why one of those ads works so much better than the other. And, um, you know, it, it, it is in my language, it's about it's about putting on a show because a good show, it does naturally tend to involve things like, you know, a story that will start to involve people. Mm. Um, it involves characters that you can relate to. Um, it, it, it may involve other things that, that, that are appealing, like, like humour or, or, or jokes or, um, or drama or emotion uh, provoked in various ways. Um, and I think that that kind of comes from a very different place from the way of creating an ad that says somehow we just have to put all these elements together and sort of hammer a set of abstract ideas into somebody's head by by repetition mm. or by writing the words on the screen or by simply showing a random series of images that we hope some of them might possibly be interesting. I mean, no random series of images is ever going to be half as interesting as a sequence of images that create some kind of a narrative. Um, so I think that's where you know the, the the truth of the what makes something entertaining has has always been you know intuitively it, it, it is know, and that, that's what, that's that's what I think some one of the most powerful things your book does is is show that there isn't the difference between entertainment and and brand advertising as we think there is they're they're far more over you know interrelated and similar than than maybe we think well one of the most pernicious myths and again one of the sort of sub stories of the book is to examine this at great length is from very early on there has been this extraordinary myth put about by the advertising industry itself that entertainment does not sell um, and I explain that and I think it is got a great deal to do with the fact that from about 1900 onwards when advertising as a business started to think of itself as a profession and wanted to be respectable um, it desperately tried to distance itself from its antecedents in the medicine shows or in um, in, in, in Barnum's work for example um, or in the traveling mountebanks I mean it, as early as 1910 the um, the trade magazine of the time the American trade magazine Printers Inc refused to celebrate the centenary of Barnum's birth in 1910 
because they said, you know, he's everything that we don't want to be. You know, he appealed to the worst of people. You know, he was to do with the bizarre and the vulgar. And, and we are, you know, we are serious professionals who are about giving, you know, giving facts and improving society. And there has always been this huge sort of desire on the part of the industry to, um, to give itself a great deal of airs and graces which, to be honest, um, shoot itself in the foot because they deny a huge amount of what has also made it actually powerful and effective. And that theme goes on all the way through. And I mean, I quote, you know, Claude Hopkins said, you know, people do not patronise a clown. Um, David Ogilvy said, do not sing your sales message. Selling is a serious business. Sergio Zyman, only a you know 20 years ago or so said advertising that just entertains does not work i mean they assert these things um and and they're wrong i mean in certain circumstances they're right but on the on the whole they're wrong <laughs> um and 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 yet people have wanted to believe this and 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 even today i think you you sort of see it in a slightly different way with today's obsession with purpose um, which I mean, a great deal of which like, I'm, I'm sort of sympathetic with Steve Harrison on this. A great deal of this, I think, is sort of spurious and um, and, and and foolish. Um, and and it's another way of the agency, the, the the advertising industry, sort of trying to tell the world, oh, you know, we don't just do those sort of silly ads. We're, we're actually doing something grand and grand and important. Actually, the grand and important thing you're doing. Um, is building your clients' brands, and anything else is kind of follows on from that. If you're not doing that, you're not doing what what you were in the world to do. I think totally, and I think a lot of it probably also comes from the client side and the client brief. I mean, I mean, I I, I learned the trade in the late '90s, early 2000s, and um, you know, back then, you know, the P and G approach was was the one that everyone copied, or Diageo. I remember copying the Diageo, where we all spent time on our brand key. You know, understanding our essence and our reasons to believe and our rational benefits and so on. And, uh, 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 you know, I very much recognize the salesmanship approach, as you describe it in your book, in the sort of early brand building approach that I was certainly taught as I as I started my career. No, well, that's absolutely true. I mean, clients, I mean, for, for, for good reasons and not so good reasons, you know, to every client, they're their business is deadly serious because of course that that's what they do and um but they cannot sort of they they, they can easily miss the point that it appears very very different <laughs> to um to the people who are actually buying their brands and so classically you know it has always been an uphill struggle for any agency to sell all this apparent fluff and nonsense and dancing polar bears and chimpanzees riding bicycles to clients who believe that their 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 brand of tea or floor cleaner or whatever is is a sort of deadly serious product that needs to be explained in a deadly serious way but mr agency you haven't covered the 15 rational reasons to believe in the 30 seconds it can't <laughs> I, I i know i know and, and it, it, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of the psychology and the the process by which advertising works um, and it's also a fear of appearing to be silly or childish. There are there yeah. are a few stories sort of illustrating that dotted around the book. I mean, one of my favourites was we did a campaign 
probably 40 years ago now for Quaker Harvest Crunch Bars, um, which featured some animated squirrels. And there's a, a man sitting on a park bench trying to eat one of these bars. And there, it was about the time that Jaws had just come out. And there was music very reminiscent of the Jaws music as the squirrels kept popping up on either side of him and trying to steal his, uh, his bar because it was so full of nuts. So, I mean, yes, there's a product benefit in there. This is full of nuts. But actually, what really makes this work is it's funny and it's entertaining mm -hmm. and it's parodic of some something that was currently, you know, part of popular culture, the, the Jaws film and all those things. It took us probably two years to sell that campaign. And we went through various rounds of research to show that people actually really liked it. But we had an American marketing director at the time who at one point sort of banged the table furiously and, and shouted, I am not having my company's fine products endorsed by a rodent. <laughs> and, I mean, it's that sort of inability. Yes. To, you know, it, it's taking yourself too seriously. Yeah. It's, it's a terribly dangerous thing. Your, your consumer doesn't think do. about you anything um, like I think they're getting. Think does, I think it? the funny thing is, I think the, cl the, the clients, the advertisers, I think they're getting much better at this. Mm. I think they're now much smarter at this. And they understand because they've all read Byron Sharp and they understand that, you know, mental availability is, is much more important than, than rational arguments. And they're also, I think, beginning to understand that building mental availability is better done by being entertaining than by, by giving people um, yet another list of facts. So I think the clients are increasingly getting it. The people who I think are slow to get it and the, the ones who are most resisting it are some of the sort of the more traditional creative departments who are trying to do something completely different. And they're trying to produce work that they think is sort of somehow I don't quite know what they're trying to do, but it's it's about being cool. And above all, it's about it's about winning creative awards, which has become a sort of little world of its own, mm, um, which is increasingly true. distanced from reality. Now, again, I, I, I think the tide is turning. I don't just want to think think everything is bad and it's all hopeless. I think we've kind of gone down. We've gone down the wrong alleyway so far that people are now, and it's not just me, people are now beginning to look around and say, is this really where we wanted to get to? And maybe we should <laughs> maybe we should rethink and go back a bit. And I'd like to think that that is happening. And if that's the case, then I think, you know, creative awards need not be the problem. They can be part of the solution. As long as creative awards um understand that the juries in creative awards understand that you know advertising only exists um because it is part of popular culture and if it's not popular culture it doesn't matter how clever or original or fashionable or, or whatever other qualities they might assume that it has um if it doesn't have those it's not it's not fit for purpose and it's not worth judging mm. it's interesting when, you, when you're chatting there about uh you know very rational clients and you know not 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 want to have a a polar bear advertise your brand or whatever it might be um i think the single biggest reason i joined system one actually or the most powerful application of of us as, a, as an agency is to prove that emotion is actually the most rational thing a brand can use and to provide the evidence of that quickly um, in the creative decision-making process. I mean, I was um, 
we, we when I was at LucasAid, we, we came up with this uh, quite dramatic idea uh, called Energy Beats Everything. And uh, mm. it, it, we were going to dramatize David beating Goliath, you know, after he'd drunk his bottle of LucasAid, of course. Yeah. Um, and, and I had to convince a, a lot of people in the organization to get behind the idea and spend a lot of money. And most of the people I was convincing would be very rational, very left-brained, typically CFOs, CEOs, sales directors, and so on. Um, and, and the clever thing I discovered, this is where I became a System One client, actually. And of course, I then ended up working for them. Sort of thing. But um, it was the ability to demonstrate the power of emotion and the power mm. of entertainment and the power of fame building. But, but by empirically showing the connection between using those things and actual market share. And I think that's, that was the trick that the agency yeah. have done very well, is to show that it, it's good business sense. You know? uh, and I think System One have done a fantastic job of that i mean i think of you know and i think other other research methodologies mm. are moving in similar directions and to some extent perhaps following in your wake but I, I think you have you have perhaps more than anyone um made that respectable if you like um that this is now sort of regarded as you know a, an alternative model and i mean it's not that long ago that I think agencies were incredibly frustrated because they felt totally in thrall to so many clients who insisted that their ad testing was all based on, well, basically it was a variation yeah. on what we used to call impact and communication tests, you know, um, but done in a very, actually a very sort of formulaic way. You know, first of all, does this cut through or whatever, which I think is a very crude way of, of looking at it. And then does it communicate the message? Um, and, you know, so often you would you just it was just obvious that you look at the ad and you look at the questions mm. that were being asked about the ad in research. And you say, why on earth are you asking those questions? You know. Here is here is a piece of research that he's asking people. Yeah. What did this ad tell you about the product? Yeah. <laughs> when it was perfectly it's not obvious, this ad yeah. was not meant to be telling you anything about the product. Yeah. It was meant to be putting a smile on your face um, yeah. and and linking it with the product. I mean, the brand linkage is obviously important, but um, you know, it, mm. it was a hugely frustrating I, I, time for agencies, and I think that probably. It probably contributed to the sort of the fragmentation of the business where, you know, there seemed, I guess, to, to be fair to the creative departments, there seemed no point in trying to do stuff that was going to going to do well on these tests. So without that kind of direction, mm. they just did something completely different and, and kind of left it to themselves to decide yeah. what that something completely different was going to be. There was no simple statement of, of you know, the formula of how this, mm. how advertising was supposed to work. It was either going to be very boring stuff that communicated a product message, or it was going to be something that was, scare quotes, creative, which, um, you know, nobody would ever define um, except it was something to do with blowing <laughs> shit up and uh, being disruptive and <laughs> being controversial or whatever it might be, which could take you off in all sorts of crazy directions and uh, increasingly did. Well, I remember before, before, before I discovered System One, you know, ve very often 
I'd have an agency present the bold fame building idea and the plan B that would get through research. And, and it's, it's mm. terrible. And, and, you know, one of my regrets is, you know, a couple of, I, I've overlooked a couple of potentially brilliant ideas that would have really worked in popular culture, would have made us famous and, and, and instinctively knew were five star ideas. But, but of course, the research process, the old, you know, the old research, this is pre-system one, the rational research process killed them off because they didn't land the messages in the way that, you know, we thought they would. But I tell you what, they'd have got talked yeah. about. They'd have made the brand famous. They would have, they would have been effective. Now I know what I know now. You know, from a system one point yes. of view, and understanding Kahneman's. I think that's approach. it. I think that's what's really positive about today, is that actually I think we now have a much better theoretical understanding and much stronger evidence mm. as to why all those things make sense. I mean, through the time I was at the agency, I think. So many of us sort of intuitively felt yeah. this is right. And to some extent, we were able to act on that intuition. But we could never entirely turn it into a sort of logical argument that said to the client, this is therefore why you should be doing this. Mm. You know, we had to kind of play this strange double game where we were pretending to do one thing while actually doing another. You know, we'd say, yes, of course, this is going to communicate <laughs> You know, I mean, even Barclay Card does that to some extent. You know, the client was was still sort of always more more concerned about does it communicate the free insurance, and if we could tick the box that it communicates the free insurance, which it, which we, which it did very yeah. well, then they were happy. Um, they were actually less in, interested in is this really funny? Is this really memorable? And yet those things, I think, are actually the more important, if anything. I mean, you know, I think the having a rational claim adds something. And I mean, there's a, another discussion about how important that is. It's not it's not completely trivial. But actually, I mean, you could have ads in that Barclay card series that did not have any product claim at all. And they could still be as effective as those that did, I suspect. Well, I did a film uh, when I was working at LucasAid with uh, Anthony Joshua. We were sponsoring Anthony Joshua, and it was a 90-second film telling the story of his life from you know from birth to walking out to Wembley to fight Klitschko. And um, I, remember, I remember saying to the team, I don't want any branding until the end. I want to tell the story. I want people to feel. And, and the, the only, this is the only time I've really said... Like, you know, I, I, I will not give you any feedback because this script is brilliant. I just just go make it. I only said one thing and I said, I just want you to leave two seconds at the end to let people feel uh, before it goes on to the next ad. You know, I want to let it breathe at the end. Mm -hmm. Just people feel that emotion at the end sort of thing. But what's interesting, though, um, and, and it was it, it, you know, we, we won two Cannes Lion Awards for it, which was which was brilliant. And it was deservedly so, actually, because it, it did fantastically got. 250 million comments i think and it, it was just astonishing it got huge huge pickup but again it was popular culture it was fame building it was it was emotive um but it was not rational at all yeah. but the interesting thing was in the research we did people that had seen it all their rational impressions of the brand went up so yes. it did, didn't you know yeah. it does does luke does lucas aid make you perform better at sport went up you know so actually by using emotion <laughs> We actually improved how 
on any measure of rationality, how anybody felt about the brand was improved after seeing the ad. Yes. Well, I think that would you tie know. in probably with a lot of the Ehrenberg Bass work that, you know, if you improve mental availability, everything else, you know, everything else mm. goes up, all other sort of specific evaluative criteria, um, yeah. which is why, you know, People always rate bigger brands higher on those things than, than smaller brands. They do. I mean, that, they do. Andrew Arambo was showing that back in the 60s, and they've been banging on about it ever since. So um, th That's those right. things are not what is actually driving it. They are, they are epiphenomena, really, <laughs> that just indicate that people, uh, you know, people want, what is it, um, science says, the primacy of affect. Basically, it all comes down to, you know, do you feel more good about something? And if you do, yeah. then, you know, when you're asked the diagnostic questions, you'll rate it more highly on just about anything. Exactly, exactly. And that, that's why we use the feeling metric in, in system one to see if people feel better about yeah. it, then they're more likely to buy. You know, the more, the more, the more people feel about it. Uh, it's funny, actually, you, you talked about COVID earlier. You are right. Um, it, positive feelings are better than negative feelings. And what we found, actually, in our testing in the last few months is any advertiser using COVID, however, implicitly in advertising, even in a positive way, the mere reference of COVID, we're seeing scores go down by an average of a star rating. Um, so you're right. So not all associations are positive. Interesting. And if you use Interesting. negative ones. Yeah, it, we discovered it at Christmas, actually, because we were fascinated to see what are advertisers going to say at Christmas? Are they going to go back to use nostalgia and familiarity or are they going to recognize the, the, the current climate and, and, and talk about it or reference it? And what we found was interesting, actually, about 80% of advertisers use nostalgia, sort of use tradition, you, you know, use familiar, familiar assets. And about 20% created something new that did reference COVID, even, even implicitly in these times or, you know, through the voiceover, or it was obvious in the scene that it was a socially distanced um, event. And um, we actually separated them out and looked at every ad that had implicit or explicit use of COVID and measured and looked at their star rating versus a pr the, the Christmas prior. And in every example, bar none, everyone had gone down and the average drop was a whole star. Which is quite, you know, on our five-star scale, that's a pretty, pretty significant chunk. Yeah, I mean that doesn't um, doesn't entirely surprise me. There's only one ad that, for me, I think has sort of managed to refer to COVID and, and get it right. But I mean, that's my subjective impression. So I would be interested if the research backed it up or not. And that's um, yes. one for the holiday yeah. company on the beach that uh, that that's came right. out not long ago with Iggy Pop. Um, and I just love that because yeah. the imagery is so positive and hopeful. And also the voiceover is so yeah. sort of yeah. taking the piss out of itself, you know, um, and, and, and sort of, you know, just saying how ridiculous this has all been. Um, so, I mean, that, that's a sort of, it's quite rare that I see an ad on the telly nowadays and I think, oh, that's a good one. But um, that, that I assume had got it right. But I mean, everything else was, a, there was a terrible sort of mm. maudlin cliche fest going on we're looking out for you in these unprecedented times and all this sort of piano music in these unprecedented times exactly the the, the one that actually the one that we picked up recently that that has done very well actually is a u.s ad from uber and um, it's a very simple idea it, it's showing people wearing masks 
um, or putting masks on before they take a journey in, in an Uber. And the basic idea is that, you know, Paul protects John, yeah. John protects James, James protects Jane, Jane protects Sarah. And, and you, you've basically got this close up of faces and you've got people putting the mask on, taking them off, adjusting them. But they're, they're, they're quite mm. individual masks. There's some color. You see you see people's eyes. You, you see people handing, you know, protecting each other. And it, it, what it's showing is we're, we're in this together and, and actually we're doing something yeah. good. By, by looking out for each other. It's a very positive and it's got a nice soundtrack as well. And that's that that got a high score. I mean this again that sounds like what I would call, you know, this is this is a reframing mm. type of ad that changes the the way you think about something. You know, I mean very easy to do ads that or communications about masks that say, you have to do this, you must do this because you're yeah. being told and everybody just sees all the negative sides of it. But to actually make it look like something that you're doing voluntarily and you know with intention um because yeah. it's about helping others and that uh, they and it's that is reciprocal that that i think you know feels very positive and and changes changes yeah. the way you feel about the whole mask wearing thing we could have done with more communications like that i think throughout this i mean well I, actually i tell you what there are there are three scenarios that have worked since covid started the first scenario that worked actually was when it initially uh broke any retailer particularly retailers that talked about we, we you know we're going to deliver to your door we're going to keep you going we're going to fix your boiler you know any any brand that demonstrated action that that they were in with us and they were helping and we, we saw lots of four and five star ads. That was quite short lived, though, because what we saw is fatigue for that message came in fairly fast. Yeah. But in the initial maybe four to six weeks, there were some incredibly high scoring ads where they, they were very simple, just like Audi, for example, saying we keep it, you know, we're going to open early for NHS workers. We're going to make sure that the farmers can still get their product to the stores. We're going to we're going to sanitize every basket before, you know, before you walk in. Um, that basically be showing that you care about everyone's welfare and that you're taking action was incredibly far. That's the first thing. The second thing I think was like Uber, which is a sort of a, a more up to date version of that, which is you know to get car, you know to get Uber back on the road. You know we we all need to be wearing masks and then we can we can help out. And then um, what's the third example I was going to say? Oh, I've completely forgotten now. Anyway, I'll come back to me. Listen, we've been talking about Barclay Card. Um, and of course, you're responsible for one of the most famous, memorable uh, Barclay Card campaigns of all time, weren't you? And, and I, I love the, the telling of the, the story in the book because I think um, everyone, you know, in retrospect, you know, strategy was always perfect and the process was always brilliant and what a team. But um, I, I loved how you described, you know, winning the pitch through to what actually happened. So mm. could, could you just um, uh, reprise the brief that you were given and and uh, how you went on to make one of the kind of greatest campaigns that well, we've seen. Well, I mean, yeah, I've told the story before. I originally wrote it up, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, I think, and uh, published it in Market Leader and in, in, in one of the IPA's books. Um, and I thought, do I dare to tell this story honestly? So I did my best to tell it as honestly as I could. And... Um, I mean, yeah, a couple of people noticed it. Jeremy Bullmore picked up on it and, and said, you know, this is probably the only honest case history of advertising <laughs> he'd ever read. Uh, I expected it to be much more controversial than it was. Um, 
and I, I hoped that more people would kind of follow, if you like. But then I wanted, to, because it hadn't been sort of noticed that much, I wanted to tell it again in the new book. Mm. And I also wanted to reflect on it a bit more deeply. I mean, the, the story brief, very briefly, and I, you know, if people want the full story, I, I do urge them to read the book. Um, I mean, basically, we pitched, as one so often does, with one campaign. Um, research was not encouraging, but we would never let go of it. Um, and we pursued this campaign, trying to make it work for six months. And it, it didn't get any better. In fact, it got worse. And then we were getting very close to the air date and we had to sort of pull <laughs> the plug. And, you know, we had very little time to come up with something else. And creative teams came up with two ideas, one of which was was hopeless. And the other, which was also pretty feeble, but it did contain Rowan Atkinson. And I did this last round of groups. It had to be done in a great hurry because we were very short of time. Um, and I, I did, I mean, it's probably my major contribution to the campaign was I, I did the focus groups and, and the ad bombed really. And I said to the groups in slight desperation, well, wh what do you think we should do? And quite a few people said, oh, well, look, we think you should use Rowan Atkinson anyway, because he's funny, whatever he does. And I sort of had to come back and that was more or less what I said in the debrief. Now, I mean, this could have been an absolute disaster. You can imagine that client could well have just gone ape shit and fired the agency or whatever. I said, you must be absolutely barking mad. But I think we, we did sort of, we'd had some brilliant account management on that account. Um, and I, I think uh, people like John McKnight and Penny Reed, you know, and we also had a very good relationship with the client. We had built a very good relationship with the client through the pitch and despite everything through the six months we've been working on. They were nice people. They were smart people. And so we were able to persuade them that despite this not sounding like very much, it did sort of give us a sense of direction. We moved very fast and we got hold of Rowan Atkinson's agent. <laughs> and mm -hmm. Rowan Atkinson came back and said, Yes, I'm quite keen to do some ads, but I don't want to do them as myself. I want to do, I've got a, an idea for a new character and I'd like to try them out in these ads. So the whole idea about Richard Latham, the secret agent, came from Rowan Atkinson. Of course, it was a, an earlier version of what he later the turned Johnny English, into Johnny English, you yeah. know, 10, 20 years later, whenever it was. Yes. Um, and this was a kind of dry run for it. And then um, we got the, the agency creative team were then sort of briefed. Here's the character. Here's the basic setup. You know, write us some scripts. So, you know, the, the agency team had, had a lot to do with it, but they weren't coming up with the, the idea. They were in the role of script writers. And then I think what made the, the films actually so very successful, because, you know, we've seen quite a lot of cases where you know, clients and agencies hire big names and they it all looks good on paper. And you think, oh, great, I've got, you know, Ruth Jones and James Corbett or whoever it is, they're going to be wonderful. And the ad is an absolute damp squib because it's been kind of over-controlled and they've been told what mm. to do and it's all been written by a committee. Now, that was the other thing that didn't happen. I mean, basically... Um, 
Rowan Atkinson and his director John Lloyd, who did not the nine o'clock news and all the other things, um, they went off with the agency creative team and the agency account management team to Cairo and Moscow and Fiji <laughs> on these fabulous location shoots, which I never got to go on, um, oh, which by no, all accounts really? were both, oh, you did. both hilarious um, and incredibly stressful. Um, and when they were there, you know, there was a lot of improvisation. They would rewrite the scripts, you know, Atkinson and Lloyd would be going, no, that line's just not funny. Suppose we do this instead. So they were absolutely treating it like a piece of entertainment rather than we have got this script that has been approved by everybody back in the office. So we've got to do it word for word. Um, and, you know, they, they, they'd pick up local talent, uh, like the, the guy in the, um, in the Cairo ad who's selling the carpet. I mean, he literally is, I think he's a real carpet seller in, uh, well, it was actually filmed. It was filmed in Cairo in Khalil, Khalil market. And he's actually talking Arabic. Um, I mean, if you understand <laughs> Arabic, he's actually yeah. saying, I don't know who you are. I don't understand a word you're saying. I think you're completely fucking mad um, <laughs> in Arabic. But yeah. I mean, the whole thing is just so beautifully put together. Um, and that's that's where the artistry of that comes in, I suppose. Now, the whole point of this story is, A, agencies don't normally ever tell those stories, neither do clients. They kind of completely post-rationalise and bury it all. I mean, a company like Unilever would go, oh, yes, you know, this is a great ad because it proves how good our systems are, you know, and it proves yes. how good our pre-testing <laughs> is and how good our ABC yeah. system is and whatever, whatever, yeah. whatever, all yeah. of which will be completely wrong. But, you know, and it's bad that they do that because they never actually learn by observing what actually happened and what actually worked. So first of all, those stories aren't told. If the story is told, there's then there's the way agencies will tell that story which is also actually not particularly helpful, which is the sort of way agency people would tell each other in the pub over a couple of pints. And they'd say, well, basically that Barclay card thing, well, actually we completely screwed around for six months and we got it hopelessly wrong. We didn't have a clue what we were doing. And then at the last minute, we just kind of got lucky and we pulled a rabbit out of the hat and phew, that was all right. And that's sort of true. But again, there's not much to learn from that. So what I was trying to do when I told the story again in this book is to, is to say, well, what more is there to be learnt from that story? And one of the things I thought I could detect in that story is there was a point in that process where we actually, because we were forced into it, we stopped just thinking about, ooh, how do we communicate our product benefits? And we started thinking about, how do we make this into an entertaining show? Yeah. And at that point, everything felt completely different. As soon as we had Atkinson on board, as soon as that part of the process started, we then had something specific. We had something exciting. We had something lively. We were no longer just sort of pushing abstract concepts around on mm -hmm. a piece of paper. We were actually saying, how are we going to make 60 seconds that will go into somebody's living room and wow them. Um, and, and we did. And we allowed that to happen. So I think there's a lot to be learnt from telling that sort of story. And that's why I think it would be good to hear more of that sort of story, 
but told in a way that actually says, you know, not just what to, what we did wrong. Um, and of course, any process of discovery, inevitably, I think, you know, people don't like to admit this, but, you know, scientific discovery is just the same. There's a lot mm. of blind alleys. You know, Edison made 50 light bulbs that didn't work before he made the one that did work. Yeah. yeah. Well, like Dyson's 7,000 patents before he got it, yeah. Exactly. It's, it's iteration, it's trial and error. And the point is, do you just kind of regard that as failure and get cross with each other and give up? Or do you actually make an effort to learn something from it and, and keep, keep moving on mm. and trying something new until you get in the right direction? Because that's show business. <laughs> it is. But the reason I loved it was because it, 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 I connected with it because it was so familiar to me. It was like, I've been there, you know, many, many, many times. And there, there's an authenticity about it that rings true, um, which I think is, is, is really quite powerful. And I, I wish we did do that more because actually there's, there's a ton more to learn by you telling that story than, than the glossy, you know, award entry, which where everything appears to be strategic and brilliant and, absolutely incredible um because there is you know that there is the learning like you know i've been in the situation where we wasted six months trying to get an idea to work in research knowing that really it's not going to work you know wish i'd changed course earlier mm. that there's that there's the power of a, a good team you know under pressure with lots of constraints you know you had you know pretty much make rowan atkinson work you know sort of thing you know there's a power of a constraint sometimes isn't there which can focus the mind and free you from in a way sometimes a broad brief can be the hardest brief can't it um you know that actually yeah, when yeah. you're in a tight brief you've got tight times it can be brilliant in fact you reminded me actually it's quite funny you reminded me of one of the best little films i've ever made again this wasn't an advert but this was um i was early in my career i um i was working at britvic soft drink company and i was setting up a new innovation team and um every quarter we would announce the plans upcoming and we'd have the Pepsi team, the Tango team, the Robinson's team, the J2O team, all these, each brand team would have 15, 20 minutes on the stage and would present loads of content. You know, they'd present, here's our 360 degree plan. Here's our above the line, below the line, our new pack and, and here are all the messages for customers. I mean, it was two hours of huge debrief. And I thought I was launching my innovation team and I was basically said, John, you need to announce this to the company. What are you going to do? And I thought I had no advertising budget. I had I, the, all I was saying to people is I've now created a new team where we're going to um, take these brands that were unloved and we're going to you know operate in a different way. We're going to oh, we're basically the concept was we were creating an innovation department and a sales department together. So we'd crumb up the idea and we'd sell it ourselves. And when it got to a certain scale, we'd then promote it into the organisation. And I thought, well, how do I how do I communicate that? So um, I actually employed a comedy writer to write a sketch for me. And, and, and he, he, we ended up employing a Ricky Gervais lookalike. And we went to the Dragon's mm. Den and we, we had a little four minute film of me pitching to, to these lookalike dragons. But Ricky Gervais walks in and completely ruins my pitch for me. And we end up in this kind of funny dialogue. Mm. And it, it, was, it was just hilarious. But uh, Steve Penk, mm. who wrote mm. it, was just a genius. And um, it, I, I remember, uh, so I was coming at the end of the two hours. I had five minutes. And I didn't stand up. I didn't give a speech. I didn't say anything about what I was doing. I just let the video play. And and we always got feedback afterwards. And everyone said that was the most memorable presentation anyone had ever seen from a, from the brand team. And then and then I also got some criticism mm. from my boss saying, 
but you didn't actually say anything. You didn't actually communicate what you're going to do. And I said, it doesn't matter. No one's going to remember what it is I'm going to do, but they'll remember this film for a long time. And they'll remember how it made them feel yeah. because I entertained them at the end of two very dry hours of, uh, of brand briefing, you know. Yes, I'm sure. Yeah. So, so listen, I love the Barclay card ad and, and you know, you, you talk, you talked a lot in your book about P.T. Barnum and actually um, we both know Mark Borkowski, don't we? Who's a, a legend of PR, of course. And he's similarly uh, quotes P.T. Barnum quite a lot as, as inspiration. Um, so what is it about P.T. Barnum that's, that, that we can learn so much from? Do you know, it's interesting you mentioned Mark Borkowski because um, I don't think he knows this because I've, I mean, it's a long time since I was in touch with him at all. Um, but I met Mark many, many years ago. This is probably 25 years ago now, I'd guess. We were on a platform together. And um, and he was enthusing to me about Barnum. Mm. And I'd never thought about Barnum at all. I'd never thought of him as having anything to do with advertising. Um, and Mark, um, Mark was sort of saying how important Barnum was. And... I think that sowed a seed in my mind and I didn't actually think about it very much or do anything about it for another 10 or 15 years. And then, I don't know what triggered it, but it then sort of started coming back and I thought, Barnum, yes, I remember Borkowski telling me something about yeah. that. And, 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 and actually, I think he, he sowed that seed because, um, as I say, Barnum has been disowned by the advertising business. I mean, Mark, his field is PR, and of course he's much more, in a way, perhaps more obviously, mm -hmm. he's the sort of grandpa of all PR. But actually, what PR and advertising do is much more similar mm -hmm. than either side like to admit. Um, and in many ways, I mean, I made this point in Anatomy of Humbug, in many ways I think PR has has often been decades ahead of mm -hmm. advertising in its actual sophistication in its understanding of mass psychology in its understanding of the power of images the power of simple slogans um, I mean it's a fascinating story um, and I think that advertising people have a great deal to learn from studying the history of, of PR um, but I think Barnum can be seen as the sort of progenitor of both. I mean, you know, Barnum, Barnum didn't use a huge amount of paid-for media. I mean, he would use it when he had the chance. There wasn't so much of it around anyway. He was a master of what we'd call earned mm. media, more than earned and owned media, more than paid-for media. I mean, his great technique was being able to do things that, I mean, he didn't have to go to the newspaper and say, would you give me some coverage? He would do something that the newspapers had to cover, whether <laughs> they wanted to or not, because it made the news. Um, and part of that was just doing things on a massive scale. I mean, I talk in the book at some length about, as a key example, the, the Jenny Lind tour, sort of 1851 or whenever it was. And part of what made that so famous was simply the audacity of it, the scale of it. You know, he didn't just hire Jenny Lind and say, I'm going to get her over to do three concerts in New York. He hired her to do 150 concerts throughout what was then the United States. Um, outrageous. I mean, he almost bankrupted himself to do it. It cost an absolute fortune. 
thousand pounds a concert, uh, you know, mm -hmm. big money. So, but the fact that it was being done on such a massive scale right from the start that made news. So immediately, you know, the papers start saying, you know, Mr. Barnum's latest, you know, crazy scheme is is such and such. I mean, it, it's like the closest equivalent today is probably somebody like Elon Musk. Yes, yes, you know, that's true. Yeah, um, Barnum and mm. Elon Musk are not dissimilar. Mm. Um, and again, it's just outrageousness doing something on a massive yeah. scale and not being afraid to be controversial. Yeah. You're right. You know. So um, and, and then he just everything he does builds on that. So, you know, he doesn't just sell tickets to the concerts for each concert. It starts with an auction. The first people to buy the tickets, the first few tickets are auctioned. And people come to the auction and pay fabulous prices for these tickets. You know, somebody paid $600 in Boston or somewhere because he, he, the guy who bought the ticket was a singer who wanted to publicize himself. This is how the, the publicity machine works. You know, people kind of use each other to, to build their fame. And then, of course, this becomes a news story in its own right. And then there's so much news around it and it then becomes controversial. Then the newspapers start saying, this is ridiculous. This is disgraceful that, you know, she's only a singer, for God's <laughs> sake. Why are we making such a fuss about her? And it all just becomes one one immense sort of conflagration. And it, it's backed up with there's loads and loads of merchandise. You know, you could get Jenny Lind cigars. And of course, he makes sure that the the books about Jenny Lind go out. I mean, of course, he's he's working within the scope of what's available in 1850. He doesn't have radio or television, let alone the Internet. But he, he I mean, if he had all those things, um, he would have used them. Um, but, you know, it, it's and I, I tell the story because what it shows is is how Barnum went about creating fame. And one of my arguments in the book is that creating fame for a celebrity is not really very different from creating mental availability for mm. a brand. In fact, I, I suggest that in marketing, we should use the word yeah. fame quite a lot more often. I mean, I think fame and mental availability are in many ways similar, very overlapping concepts, but they have different a different flavor do, to them, different connotations yeah. you know mental availability it's a very sort of dry phrase and I, that's precisely why someone like byron yeah. sharp will choose it because you know he wants to be precise about what he means he wants it to sound scientific he is after all a you know university professor and so forth and i respect all that and i think it's a very very valuable phrase but then when you kind of want to sort of turn it into something more vernacular um, you know, fame gives you a completely different set of feelings about it. It, it does, doesn't it? And it also leads you to a different conclusion. Because I, I, instinctively, you say mental availability. Uh, and I remember meeting Byron Sharp when he first wrote the book and asking, I said, look, if I only had a pound, what would I do with it? And in fact, ironically, I met him when I was launching this new team at Britbeck. It was at exactly the same time. And because I was working on innovation and challenger brands, I was particularly interested in how do I make, how do I compete with much bigger brands? And so I heard him talk and said to him afterwards, Byron, look, 
I don't have millions of pounds. If 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 I had a pound, if you you know, if I only had a pound, what would I do with it? And he said, just buy the biggest advert you can for that pound. And and, and I think the difference between that and fame is if, if you if you come at it from how do I make my brand famous, you might spend that pound entirely different. You might place a bet yes. that's never been placed before yes. that everyone talks about and goes, why is this guy placed this crazy bet? You know, yeah. you you do something. And, and so that's the difference, I think, is that by thinking of fame, it does take you to... Yeah, no, that's very well expressed, I think. I mean, um, I think another difference between fame and mental availability, it just occurs to me, is that, I mean, mental availability is basically, it's a psychological concept. It's something that's going on in <laughs> your brain or my brain. <laughs> um, that's what it means. But fame is actually a social construct. Fame is something that happens in society as a whole it's social um, and therefore fame if you like describes a kind of a process an emergent process of which mental availability is perhaps one one type of outcome um, and I think that's another reason why the two words have a different feel and, and, and as you say fame I mean I, I, when I talk in the book about how do you create fame and of course th there is no simple answer to this and I'm not sure my answers are particularly profound but one aspect of fame is that it has to be social you know for fame to be real it is a it is that point where everyone gets sufficiently involved in something in one way or another mm. that they want to talk about it they want to share it they want to argue about it they want to wear the T-shirt or, or buy the briefcase um, or, or whatever it is. Um, and, you know, you see that all the time in popular culture. You see it in so many ways. You see it in sort of fandom and things like where people all dress up as Star Wars and go to conventions. I mean, it that does. shows you you've got something famous. Um, mm. and, and that infinitely multiplies <laughs> you know and that, whatever and that's why you the, had to start with yeah um so the more role there is this something like strictly <laughs> yes. come dancing is quite fascinating because um yeah you ballroom know, dancing who'd have thought it it's ballroom dancing ballroom supposedly dancing. and it's still a sort of top rating show but it's more than just a top rating show um part of the reason it stays a top rating show is because the people who are into it get so involved in it and you see people watching Strictly Come Dancing and they're all on their WhatsApp feeds as the show is on, interacting with their friends, um, saying, you know, what did you think of that dance? And that what did you th wasn't that rubbish? And oh, I'd never have given that a seven and uh, blah, blah, blah. Um, all mixed up with, you know, yes. are they actually having an affair or not? Which is the other <laughs> sort of yeah. great, great interest that, that's always built up the human interest thing that, that, that that's built up around it. Um, so, strictly come dancing has become a great way. Now, since Joe, I think Joe Sugg was the first one to do it. But since Joe Sugg did it, mm. every strictly has had an influencer on it, and you know, a, a vlogger, an internet in, influencer, basically because they twig that well, I may have five million followers on my on my internet feed but but basically nobody over the age of 18 has ever heard of me um, if I go on to Strictly and especially if I win 
<laughs> and especially if I have an affair with my partner, you know, yeah. I'm going to be transformed overnight into yeah, all-round family entertainer, you know, and yeah, you can so sort of see, I mean, Joe Sugg is now West End musicals, fronting his own TV shows, um, you know, he can keep that going with a bit of luck, you know, the rest of his life. Um, and he's, he's now much better known than his sister, which was formerly the other way around. That's, oh, I'd forgotten that. You're right. Because he was the lesser known of the two. You're right. He was, he was no, I mean, nobody outside the, 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 you know, a few people had heard of Zoella outside the, 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 the sort of field itself. Nobody heard of Joe Sugg. But now he's much better known than her. And of course, he's got, he's got more followers. So, I mean, a, another aspect of this is, you know, there's a lot of tosh talked about you know, every new social media platform that comes along, you know, is hyped up. And again, they're, they're building their own fame, so why not? And it's like, this now makes everything else obsolete. You know, <laughs> why are you advertising on television? Well, now you've got TikTok. Yeah. Well, the whole point is that, you know, somebody who's made their name purely on TikTok hasn't made it purely on TikTok. They've, they've used TikTok as a stepping stone. I mean, take Char Charlie D'Amelio. Mm. who's the first person to have 100 million followers on TikTok, you know, as she starts getting famous on TikTok, um, brands start getting in touch with her and saying, hey, you know, would you like to do promote our product? And then somebody says, would you like to appear in a Super Bowl ad? And then somebody else says, would you like to appear doing a duet with me? Um, you know, so, so, you know, there's this phenomenon, there's this ecosystem of fame whereby everything supports everything else. So as you get new channels like WhatsApp or, or TikTok or, or gaming platforms or whatever it is, um, none of these things exist necessarily in isolation. They just become another strand that, that Barnum would certainly use if he yes, was alive he today. But it doesn't make anything else obsolete as long as it's still got an audience. Um, that the big fame is still being created actually by the big broadcast media. Yeah. Well, I thought the, the other thing that uh, I want to get on as well to the facets of fame that you come on to in your book and, and, and you know, what, what we can do, what we should be doing. But just before I do that, um, the, the other thing that jumped out to me in that section as well was the role of energy, as you describe it, and how important energy is. And I, and I think that's almost like the X factor that people don't often realise is associated with great success. And can be the difference mm. between you know success and failure. And it, ironically, it's why we came up when I was working on LucasAid with the um, we came up with this proposition called energy beats everything. You know, it doesn't matter the talent you've got unless you apply it with a great deal of energy. It's not going to make the difference. Um, we, I, I was sad actually because I think I think the team after me dropped it, but I just thought it was such a brilliant idea um, as a brand. But anyway, we're coming back to this point. You, you draw that out in the book, don't you? The you know whether you look at Coke or Quaker or Barnum himself, the role that energy played in um, in their success. That's right, because it, it's about scale and it's about being opportunistic and it's about being responsive. And that's why I'm so, on the other hand, so sceptical about this idea about brand essences, um, because the thinking behind brand essences seems to be once we've got our brand key or our brand onion or whatever it is, once we've got our big brand idea, um, somehow everything will just sort of naturally fall into place um, and it'll all be wonderful. Now, 
I, I, I still remain to be disproved, but, you know, I, I've never really seen this happen. When you actually do look at brands that have succeeded, it's because they have moved fast with a great deal of energy. Mm. You know, they build mental availability by being adaptive, by being opportunistic, um, by taking advantage of, you know, whatever's happening this week. Yeah. Um, you know, whatever it is. And they build physical availability. Yeah. And that yeah. essentially means bloody hard work. It, yeah. I mean, that that is absolutely the story of Coca-Cola, yeah. which is the one I do tell at some length in the book. I mean, Coca-Cola from its birth in 1885. Um, you know, it did not have a unique idea. It did not sort of take the world over because there was nothing like it. There were hundreds of rival cola brands, mm. you know, Every every town in the U.S. had some guy like Pem was, you know, mixing drugs together and making their patent syrups that could have been mixed up in the drugstore. Um, and there were 101 brands with names like Cola Cola and Cafe Cola and Cola Cooley and whatever. Um, and the reason that Coca-Cola wins out is, is because Asa Candler basically drives it like mad uh, with with assistance from you know from his from his assistants and they throw huge amounts of money into publicity and the publicity takes many many different forms um, you know some of it is about the product a great deal of it is about drinking occasions um, they position it at loads of different target audiences loads of different drinking occasions they're continually adding new ones there's very little sense of it is this and it is not that yeah um the only things that are absolutely consistent and are terribly important are its use of distinctive assets which they do sort of stick to very closely so right mm. from the start you have the script logo um and then not right from the start but from a bit later on actually you have the distinctive bottle Yes. Um, and you have slogans which in themselves are actually not not differentiating but because they own them are distinctive like delicious and refreshing i mean that sounds the tritest <laughs> possible slogan you know what soft drink would not call itself delicious and refreshing yeah but they that particular choice generic. of words yeah. because they repeat it often enough that becomes ownable by coke and they build those distinctive assets over time. Mm. And so, you know, it is energy, energy, energy. The quote I use originally comes from Barnum, actually. And I mean, it's in the book where he says something like in his many autobiographies that he wrote, he said, you know, I, I, I never did anything that nobody had done before. You know, basically everybody mm. else had, had done the same sort of things as me. But if I succeeded, it's because I had more energy and more ingenuity. And yeah. so much of it does come down to that. I mean, equally, I, I talk about the Beckhams, um, for whom I have a sort of a, a sneaking admiration, I must say, because I think for anybody to sort of set out to be a celebrity and 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 continue to be a celebrity does require something quite heroic. I mean, it's not all fun. Not it's not only just hard work, but you know, you have to have a pretty brass neck as well. But you know, the, the Beckhams certainly have in, immense energy. And I mean, I suppose I, 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 
I don't believe I for a moment have the energy that is required to become super famous and I don't really want to be super famous. So as long as a few people buy my book, I'll be happy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure more than a few will. But um, you, uh, Elon Musk is a great example, isn't he? Like you referred to earlier. I mean, the, the, the productivity of the guy is insane. The fact that he wants to colonize Mars and he's launching a truck and then he's going to move on to lorries. And I mean, it's just insane really the, the the energy that's right i mean what is what is going to mars got to do with with launching an electric car but i mean what it's got to do with it is people are actually much more interested in space travel yeah. than electric cars yeah. everyone's doing an electric car yawn 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 i suppose we'll get them eventually yeah but you know this guy just makes the news and it, so it his company is worth a fortune Yep. Whereas everybody else is making electric cars and, and nobody wants to buy their stock at all. Completely. And, and you know, I listened to him on Joe Rogan the other day and he, he, he said, look, in a way, his work is done on electric cars because he's taken the entire industry that would have taken 20 or 30 years to get, get their act together and shrunk it down to 10. So he, he's, he, in his sense, he, the bigger impact is not how many cars Tesla sell, but how many electric cars the industry sells. Um, so he's he's now that's very interesting. yeah very interesting yeah. isn't it? So, I mean he's a catalyst. He is. for the whole the whole category. It's exactly yeah. how he sees himself, and that's why he's moving on to Mars as his next. You know because if the Earth runs out of resources or we have a big, uh, I can't remember how you put it. He said once every you know hundred years there's a cataclysmic event. You know that there's a probability every year one percent of something really disastrous happening. Um, it will be handy to have a uh, an alternative planet to reside on. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's yeah. just insane, isn't yeah. it? But uh, but it's amazing. Yeah. Um, so listen, let, let's come on and talk about um, the finally the, the the different facets of fame because it's really interesting and I think it really pulls it all together, doesn't it? As we've been talking about celebrity and brand and uh, and, and how they work. But I mean, the, the four things I picked up in your in your section, you know, the, you know, having a intrinsic product quality is so important. Obviously, you've got to be talented, you know, like Beckham at football or you know the Spice Girls at putting popular music together. Um, you need to you know access you know audiences on a big scale you need to do it in a distinctive and memorable way and then your your fourth bit about social diffusion you know create kind of ongoing engagement is where the energy comes in i mean that 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 process that you might compare a celebrity to incredibly similar to a successful brand isn't it yes exactly and um yeah i mean i don't know how profound those four facets are but i've don't recollect ever coming across anything quite like that anywhere else. Mm. And the more I sort of live with it, the more it it feels to me like a sort of a practically useful checklist. Because if you don't pay attention to all four of those things, I think you substantially reduce your chances yeah. of becoming famous. I don't think you ever guarantee becoming famous. It is an emergent thing. It's hugely competitive. Um, there are moments when, you know, I think one has to admit that a certain amount of luck is involved, but it's also about, as I say, the energy with which you are able to take advantage mm. of opportunities as well. So to some extent, you also make your own luck you or you look for your own luck. But yes, you know, you cannot control it, but you can, I think you can substantially shift the odds in your favour. And so if you ignore any one of those four, I think you're much less likely to succeed. So, I mean, if basically the thing that you have got and when I when you say the product has to be good, I don't just literally mean the product, because often 
it's not really about the product at all it's about the presentation of the product or it's about the the non-physical product that you're selling but the performance that you're putting on it has to be a good one it has to be attractive people have to want it so you know part of the spice girls success was they did actually write some bloody good songs um and and that was a good part of it on the other hand lots of people write bloody good songs and they sink without trace uh, and theirs didn't one reason that theirs didn't was that they made sure that they had a really good agent who was able to get them signed up to a major label was able to get them at a very early stage in their career appearing on the brits you know put them about i mean pure barnum stuff um you have to get to those big audiences um and there's a, there's a lot in the book about how as far as i can tell very little actually goes viral even when things appear to go viral what is actually happening is they're being picked up by a few people yeah. with hundreds of millions of followers yeah. and being you know passed on or whatever and i mean a lot of this comes from derek thompson's book hit makers which i cite quite a lot in the book and i do respectfully recommend to anybody who <laughs> likes my book you might as well read that one as well um but things like harry potter and 50 shades of gray he tells those stories about you know they didn't just kind of pass from 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 one word of mouth to another at various key points in their histories they actually got picked up by hugely influential yeah. you know people with mass audiences dark broadcasters as he calls them and moved on so one way or another you have to get to those big audiences and if you have got money to spend paid for advertising is a very good way of doing that because you have control over it mm. if you don't have that money then it's more hit and miss because you have to do what barnum did you have to make the news and get cover coverage um but you know there are ways and means of doing that the third thing is is about the distinctiveness um you know people have to remember who you are and i i was having this conversation with somebody i'm i'm working with at the moment a brand i'm working with um just the other day actually in a way it's 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 easier for celebrities than it is for brands because um on the whole everyone will remember who the celebrity is because people are individual people are unique they can add to this you know you can certainly add to it by having your your own particular gimmick your own hairstyle your accent you know your your way of dressing or whatever it is but basically if you're interesting enough as a person people will remember you are a person they will remember that you know people are unique and we have an extraordinary capacity for remembering thousands of unique faces you know so we know that this is Emma Stone this is Jude Law or whoever we mm. just have to see their face and know it instantly brands it can be more difficult because they don't have that automatically built in you have to create that unique individuality through the use of distinctive assets um and or what you call fluent devices yeah. which is not similar but not not precisely the same definition but but that's the third thing and then as i say the thing i talked about a bit earlier as well you know you can put all those things in place but you only really have fame when it becomes a social phenomenon fame originally was a social phenomenon it was word of mouth it was something created by the public created by the crowd and until it becomes that you know 
you're you're like trying to start a fire and just putting more fire lighters on it you have to get to the point where you know the fire starts taking on a life takes off, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so I think those four things, and, and there are things you can do to encourage that by stimulating controversy, by creating merchandise, by finding ways in which people can, can actively mm. be involved with the brand. So I think that they are potentially generative questions that any brand or any business or, or indeed any celebrity could could usefully consider when they're thinking about what to do next and that those might actually be more valuable questions than to try and be too precise about you know what is my essence um <laughs> who am i well we've all been in those I mean, meetings you know, haven't I mean, we wordsmithing the... entirely irrelevant yeah. questions but you can actually sort of change all those aspects uh, and, and indeed many celebrities frequently do you know, yes. you can you can completely reinvent yourself and still remain the same celebrity. And sometimes that's absolutely the right thing to do. You can you can go from being, you know, Miley Cyrus, uh, the, the sort of clean cut, you know, yeah, teenager yeah, in, in, in Hannah Montana to being, mm. you know, the most sort of raunchy, <laughs> badly <laughs> behaved. Yes. And, and it's a deliberate ploy because, you know, it's like that makes much more news it does. than if you just sort of neatly segue into something that's totally predictable. Yeah, um, well, like so Kylie that's, and that's Madonna. Why she did it. And, that, and yeah. having done that, of course, she's now moved on to doing something something else. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the notion that your your essence is somehow the most important thing is, is a mistake. Mm. So let's let's end maybe with your manifesto, because uh, in your book, you, you come to your sort of manifesto for creativity. Although, interestingly, of course, you don't mention creativity, do you, in your book, which I thought was... Uh... I, I really came to distrust and dislike the word creativity because because it it means so many wrong things and it, it so often means nothing at all. So I kind of quite consciously, in a way, as I was writing the book, I didn't quite know how I was going to end up, but as I was writing most of the book, I just felt such a disinclination to use the word creativity that I didn't use it. I mean, I use it once or twice when I quoted Bill Bernbach or something, but apart from that, I didn't use it at all. And as I say in the book, you know, there were times when it might have sort of momentarily come into my mind. And then I just had to stop and think, well, what? did I really mean by that? And I think I could always find a better and more precise way of putting it. So if I wanted to say originality, I'd say originality. If I wanted to mean artistry, I'd say artistry. If I wanted to say, you know, entertainment, I'd say entertainment. Um, and it wasn't a problem. And it was only when I sort of got towards the end, I thought I actually have to kind of confront this one. Um, and I decided I was going to use it as the subtitle for the book because I thought it's a word that is so commonly used. That's a word a lot of people will, will relate to. So saying this is what creativity means is possibly what a lot of people will be interested to hear what I think about that, whether or not they agree with it. So I had to confront it when I got to that final part of the book. So then I had to confront and I said, you know, what is wrong with creativity today? Where has this word been been, um, been taken mm. to? Um, and I talk about its history. 
Um, and I, I'm sort of, I, I entertain the idea that we might do without it altogether, but I say, well, it's not going to happen. So the most important thing is if we are going to talk about creativity and if clients, as they are, are going to say, you know, we are going to have a creativity task force. What is that going to mean? It's really important that we're all clear what we mean by it. If they mean we are going to win awards at Cannes and that's all we care about, then they might as well say that. But I mean, I think they would be bloody stupid if they did. Um, I think, you know, we have to be clear what we want creativity to mean. And so my manifesto is, well, first of all, it has to be discussable. Part of the problem with the word is, you know, it's been undiscussable. Um, people have made a sort of great virtue of saying, oh, you can't define creativity, man, which is bollocks. Um, so we have to be able to talk about it. I mean, probably the most useful book I've found with creativity in its title, apart from mine, of course, is Ed Catmull's book about Pixar called Creativity oh, yeah. Inc. Yeah. Now, I think Pixar are allowed to talk about creativity and say that's what it, mean, what it means for them because Pixar know um, how to create beautiful works of entertainment which are very, very successful. They are both beautifully crafted and, you know, they're rich and intelligent, but above all, they are popular because that's the business they're in. Mm. You know, they're not about producing art house movies. They're about producing things that break box office records. So creativity for them is how do you do that? How do you use artistry and imagination to create something that is going to be hugely popular and go on being hugely popular. Now, if we can make creativity mean that in advertising, then I think it's it's a useful word and an important word. Um, so I suppose in a line, that's that's really what it is. Um, you know, everything else is just kind of saying where it's gone wrong. But I think I can perhaps save time by just saying more briefly Creativity is the use of artistry and imagination to make something that is genuinely and lastingly popular. Yeah. And that is very challenging. Yeah. That is actually in many ways much more difficult than sticking a banana to a wall and winning the Turner <laughs> Prize. Um, because there you only have to please a few people who are probably your mates anyway. Um, this is about pleasing the great millions well, you're right. You're, you're fine. Um, and that, that is a real challenge. And, and I think the ad industry used to know how to do that. And then it stopped wanting to do that. And I think now it has two issues that it has to confront. One is it has to start wanting to do it again. But it also actually has to remember how to do it again. And I fear that may take a bit more relearning than we think. Mm. Because I see some ads now around today where I think I give that one some kudos because I think it's trying to do the right thing. It's trying to be entertaining. It's trying to use celebrities. It's trying to be popular. But actually, it's just not being done very well. So it doesn't really work. And particularly to work within a 60 second or a 30 second framework which is not the only thing we're talking about, but, you know, it's still an important medium. Um, 
that's hugely challenging. Um, I think the art of being able to tell a story in 60 seconds like the Barclay card ads did is one that I don't see anybody much, maybe spec savers are doing it quite well or have been. Um, but you know, that, that skill set is in danger of being forgotten. I mean, it can be got back, but you know, it's not just, it's not just good enough to have good intentions. Mm. You actually have to be able to deliver. I mean, there's, we've been having a, we've been having quite a lengthy exchange on uh, LinkedIn recently, where I focused on a couple of ads that came up in campaigns private view this month. One of them is the um, Amazon's Alexa's body ad. I don't yes. know if you've yeah, seen yeah, this one. one. I know. I know. That was Super Bowl, wasn't it? Um, System yeah. One have tested it. It was a Super That's Bowl right. ad. And I and clearly not just me, but quite a few other people as well, particularly the the non-professionals who happened to be invited into the private view, were just looked at that ad and, and the first couple of times we saw it just did not understand what was going on. So, of course, if you don't understand what's going on, you don't even get to first base. <laughs> it's not engaging. It's not funny. It's just irritating. Um, now, I mean, when I sort of studied it carefully and I watched it a few times and I had somebody explain it to me, I can see what it's trying to do. And actually, I get to the point where I almost think, oh, yeah, that's quite clever. It's quite funny. But that's not good enough because, um, you know, it has to do that without anybody <laughs> explaining what's going on. And, you know, that degree of skill, I think, is perhaps not valued enough. Mm. So very good. So creativity is not just wanting to do the right thing, but it's, it's having those very demanding skills to deliver it within the particular constraints of advertising. Yeah. And with long term impact, I think you added, didn't you, to your definition or long term success? Yes, long-term impact, yeah. which of course means it, it's about creating campaigns and lasting, um, you know, campaign properties rather than just one-off ads. That's another another area where creativity, as as currently understood, um, and creativity as as sort of valued by creative awards, has has I think often lost sight of yeah. that for quite a long time now. It's not about campaigns, it's about one-off ads. But one-off ads mostly don't add up to yeah. much. We are really looking for campaigns that will run over over years. Definitely, brilliant. Well, listen, I encourage everybody to grab a copy of, of Paul's book. It is really, really fascinating and, and so useful as well. Um, so, so, Paul, thank you so much. May I just say it's uh, available as a paperback. It's available as an ebook on all your favourite platforms, Kindle, well, all of the others, um, and it's available as an audio book. And uh, if you aren't sick of the sound of my voice, having listened to the whole of this podcast, <laughs> you can listen to it for another eight and a half hours on the audio book, which again is it's available through Audible and through all the other platforms that are available so you should have no difficulty getting hold of any of those through 
through any of your usual retail channels. Very good. Why does the peddler sing? There you go. So for the full answers to that question, get hold of a copy now. Um, and actually, bizarrely, I've just remembered the third example of COVID ads that work. The BBC uh, did a vaccine ad with Elton John and oh, Sir Michael Caine. Yes. Did you yes. see it? Yes. It was brilliant. Yes. Yeah, no, it's no, absolutely it's brilliant. Nice. Yeah, it's very simple. And it just shows, it just shows, yeah. you know, simple idea, well acted, brilliant script, humour, and yeah. it was very timely. And use of celebs again, you know. It's an old trick, but it might just work. It it works as well. So anyway, so I, I didn't want to leave people without that third example. So there you go. You can, uh, you can tackle a tough subject like vaccines in, a, in an entertaining way um, for the public good. That's, uh, that's really good. Listen, Paul, thank you so much. It's been absolutely wonderful having you on and uh, look forward to the next one. Thanks, John.